And uh, just before we turn to the scriptures this evening, I want to give uh, one time here on the Sunday night. Normally we don't do announcements, but just so if you're planning on going on the Israel trip of this coming uh, March, the flyers are out uh, on a bulletin board and a display and everything in the fellowship hall. Uh, Sign-ups will be first come, first serve on it. We have, we've booked quite a few flights and all, so it it looks like we can accommodate a pretty good uh, sized group of people, but sometimes things fill up faster than than you even think, and I want everyone to be able to know that as you seek the Lord's will related uh, to that. So... That trip is coming up. Uh, Go ahead and be seated. Did I already say that to you? Okay, very good. I I noticed you were. I just thought, good for them if I forgot to say anything. Have a seat. This guy, he forgets stuff. Okay, Genesis chapter 8 this evening. We find ourselves kind of in the middle of uh, the flood at the time of of Noah and uh, We pick things up in chapter 8, verse 1. And then God remembered Noah. Now, it isn't that uh, God had forgotten Noah. Like, you and I forget that we left the water running in the yard, in the backyard, you know, or something. Like, oh no, what? You know, and three hours late or something like that. I mean, we never do that because we live in the city of Modesto and we're very careful about water. But, I mean, things we can forget things, uh, reheating pizza in the oven, stuff like that. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, this remembering Noah is a Hebraism, and it means to uh, begin to act on their behalf. So it speaks of the fact fact that uh, God uh, continues now his uh, tender and, and special care of Noah and his family. So he remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him uh, in the ark. And God made a wind uh, to pass over the earth and the water subsided. So here we're at the point in the flood where uh, the waters are, uh, the rain is going to stop and the source of water in, in the flood is going to stop and now the waters are going to begin to subside and to uh, reveal kind of a new earth that the flood has produced. And so he comes in and God starts to cause a wind, probably a good strong wind. Uh, those of you who, you know, uh, garden or work on, care about those kinds of things, you know what, how dry uh, a strong wind over a couple of days can dry everything out very, very quickly, the soil and all. So for the purpose of evaporation, he starts a wind working on these, the water and, and, and all uh, for uh, it to subside. And then in verse 2, he, he stops the two sources of water related to the flood. And that is the fountains of the deep, uh, as those springs had broken up, uh, those are now uh, stopped. And also the windows of heaven, the rain, were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. Uh, At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. And so here's a long period of time. Uh, 40 days, 40 nights for the water to reach the level that it, that it was and all. And now it's going to take a while for that water to recede, extended uh, periods of, of time. Uh, but it does uh, decrease and recede. And as it does, the ark uh, rested um, uh, in the seventh month, uh, the 17th day of the month, 
uh, in Ceres. Now, is that what it says? It says, in the mountains of Ararat. Uh, so, it's a mountain range in north-central, what is north-central uh, Turkey today. And uh, that's where the ark settled in, and became kind of, uh, you know, stuck there on the ground and uh, whatever the word is for that. And I'm not a sailor uh, related to things. And so, uh, what, what would that word be? Huh? Yes, it grounded. Yes, of course. Very good. <laughs> okay, we're on the radio here. Try not to sound too much smarter than me. Okay. So anyway, the boat, the ark grounded on, on the, uh, uh, the mount, uh, mountains of Ararat. You notice this is mountains plural. It's, it's a mountain range. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it grounded upon the highest part of the mountain. This is why sometimes... When they have an extraordinarily uh, hot uh, summertime uh, in Turkey, in that part of the world, and the snow uh, recedes, the, the levels go higher and higher in the elevations, there's always a tremendous interest for whether the ark will become uh, you know, uncovered by the ice. And, and historically, there have been a couple of times where they felt that uh, that has um, happened. But the, the interest uh, continues because of this verse and the waters uh, decreased continually until the tenth month in the tenth month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains were seen so more and more land they're being able to see it uh, from the ark as the waters are receding and so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark that had to be uh, great isn't it Um, got a lot of animals on there and to open that window up who did I ever tell you that I worked at the rabbit and poultry building at the Napa Town and Country Fair I have several times but anyway um, I did I basically ran that building and uh, under somebody else but you know he knew and uh, so but but in those days that fair ran four days uh, Thursday through Sunday and I mean tons don't when you go there today they've got like 30 rabbits and 60 chickens or something you know back when I ran it uh, I know there were a lot of rabbits a lot of chickens and ducks and geese and all kinds of things and about the fourth day of the fair because it was always in August really hot whoo Boy, did it smell in there. And uh, so you can imagine what it was uh, like here. And and that, of course, gives rise to the old saying. Perhaps you've heard it related uh, to the ark being related to the church. uh, That it was uh, uh, only the flood on the outside that caused them to endure the smell on the inside. And sometimes that's the way that it is with the body of Christ. Uh, There are no good options to remaining in contact with uh, the body of Christ is, is uh, smelly as it might be at times. But anyway, they opened up the window of the ark that he had made, and then he sent out a raven uh, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And so uh, he lets out a raven, and the raven doesn't come back to him. The dove is going to in just a moment. But he lets the raven out. Now, the raven can eat flesh. So uh, it goes out of the ark, and it comes back to the ark is a resting place because it can't find any land to, to settle on. But it doesn't need to come back into the ark for food. So they're probably feeding off of carcasses or whatever kind of things are, are now beginning to, you know, 
layer up on these mountains and going to become a part of the fossil record and all of that. And, and so that raven goes out and, uh, and kept going to and fro. The water hadn't dried up enough uh, for it not to come back to the ark uh, for a, a, a sure place to stay uh, situated. And then he sent out from himself a dove, and a dove is a clean bird, a raven is unclean, as Moses will define it later, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned uh, into the ark to him. So uh, a dove is not uh, carnivorous, and uh, so she has no source of food outside. So she not only comes back to the ark to find a resting place to perch on, but she needs food, so she comes back inside of the ark uh, in order to uh, find sustenance. And, uh, and so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the ark uh, or the dove out from the ark and then the dove came to him in the evening and behold a freshly plucked uh, olive leaf was in her mouth those are tough trees those are really tough trees but they're able to endure and now they're coming out from under the surface uh, under the, the covering of the water and uh, she plucks this uh, this olive leaf in her mouth brings it back to Noah and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth so not only are the mountains being uncovered but uh, now vegetation is starting to spring back to life uh, as, as the water is receding and so he waited another yet another seven days and sent out the dove which did not return uh, again to him anymore indicating that uh, the dove had now found a source of food out there so the earth is really recovering it has the ability to sustain life once again and uh, that's how he interprets uh, the fact that uh, the dove did not return to him anymore and it came to pass in the 601st year on the uh, first month the first day of the month that the waters were dried up from the earth Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and indeed the surface of the ground was dry and it must have been quite a sight you think about him and he has when they got on that ark and, and we have no idea what the world was like prior to uh, the flood except that we know that it was different because there was no rain it was watered by a moisture canopy and and these, uh, the buckling of the earth, the water coming up forward, the shifting of the earth as a result of that, the water settling things in a way that it never had been before and all. So the world looks very, very different uh, to them. And he's seeing, you know, blue skies and clouds and things that maybe he'd never uh, kind of seen in this way before. The entire, uh, you know, uh, terrain is very, very different in terms of what it is that, that he has Seeing, seeing as as the ground is now dried in the second month on the 27th uh, day of the month the earth was dried and so when you compare the date there in uh, verse 14 with the date that God gives us in uh, uh, chapter 7 verse 11 for the beginning of of the flood uh, Noah and his family and the animals were on the ark for a total of one year and six days a long time. That's a long time. I mean, uh, 
Can you imagine when they were able to get out of that thing? I mean, you're thankful for it. But then to get out of it and to step, you know, onto the ground uh, once again. So they were on, on that boat, that ark, for a long time. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. God had commanded them to get on the ark, and Noah was going to wait for his command to get off of the ark. This was God's uh, dealing and... And uh, Noah wanted his orders to come from the Lord. And to bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with them. Grand total of eight people here have uh, survived uh, the flood. And every animal and creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, and according to their families, went out of the ark. And then in response to this, coming out, standing on the ground, we have survived the judgment of God and, and all. Noah built an altar. So this is an expression of his worship to God. And he took of every clean animal and every clean bird. Remember, there were seven of those that God brought to the ark to, be, uh, to come on there. And he offered burnt offerings on uh, the altar. So God knew that Noah would want to offer a burnt offering to him as an expression of of his worship, an expression of his thanksgiving, and, and all for having survived this judgment and and all. And so he built kind of a buffer into the clean animals uh, that that Noah uh, would would take an offer on on the altar. It's interesting that later on, under the law of Moses, you you notice that uh, when when Noah offers this offering to the Lord, it, 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 he considers it to be a burnt offering to the Lord. And under the law of Moses, God would establish formally the burnt offering, and it would be different from the sin offering and many other different offerings. And the burnt offering was unique among all the offerings in that whatever animal you brought to sacrifice as a part of the burnt offering, it would be completely consumed upon the altar. Some of the other sacrifices, a portion of it would be cut away and given to you and your family to then uh, eat for yourself and celebrate the things of the Lord. The burnt offering was completely uh, burnt on, on the altar. And uh, all of it was for the Lord. And, and so the burnt offering represented consecration. And that's what a burnt offering, when you see it in the Bible, it speaks about consecration to the Lord. Lord, just as this offering is being completely consumed, not being shared uh, uh, by anyone else with you, so, Lord, I am offering my life completely to you as a burnt offering. And uh, it's all your and you don't have to share it with anyone. That was the heart behind the burnt offering, and that was the heart that Noah 
uh, behind Noah's sacrifices here and then related to his family. In essence, he's saying to God, we understand why the judgment came upon the earth. Men's hearts were divided away from you towards sin and all and we're thankful for salvation. We're thankful. uh, We want to worship you here, but we also want you to know that as an expression of our heart right now is you're beginning everything fresh and anew that you have our complete consecration of our lives we are completely uh, set apart for you and that's the heart behind uh, the offering that they offered uh, this pleased the Lord and the Lord smelled a uh, soothing aroma and uh, and the aroma of course the physical aroma of um, well it's like barbecue Smells pretty good, doesn't it? Not for you vegetarians. We'll get to you in a minute, by the way, but so don't get all haughty. But um, sometimes you, you drive by these places and they're cooking all that meat out there and they're parking a lot and different things. And if it gets you hungry, you know, it's pretty tempted to pull in and grab one of those things, which I think is the idea. But anyway, the, um, but there's a, a great smell. But more important than... The, the physical fragrance of the offering is the spiritual fragrance of what God knows that Noah and his family are offering up to, uh, to the Lord. That is very, very special uh, uh, to, to him. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And now had he done it, he had done it by water. Now he's going to destroy the earth again one day, but he won't do it by water. He will do it by uh, fire. Second uh, Peter tells us, and while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And so God declares that uh, throughout the rest of human history, that the seasons, the day, the night, all of this, the whole rhythm of the creation uh, that we need in order to to survive here will not be uh, unbroken until the Lord brings an end to all of this and then and then ultimately creates a new heaven and and a new uh, earth chapter uh, 9 and so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth now remember he had given that same command to uh, Adam and Eve and so now he's, he's starting all over again population is is very very small here and uh, and uh, just eight people and uh, uh, so here the world has to be repopulated refilled now on the basis of these these eight people and uh, so uh, he gives them the the command so down to eight must repopulate so uh, this is why I was never really any good at anti-war slogans uh, or anything else earlier in my youth. But um, you can borrow that uh, if, if, you, if you're desperate. But, but the population was very low, needed to repopulate it, and so he gives them the command. Now, 
take uh, in a serious uh, side of this in verse 1 uh, this take note of this command that the Lord gives to Noah because when we get to chapter 11 and they start man starts to build the tower of Babel uh, they're concentrating the human population they are disobeying this command of God they do not want to do this and that's why God is forced to then disperse uh, the population uh, by virtue of, of of what he does at the Tower of Babel. And the fear of you, God said to man, and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, and they uh, are given into your hand. And so God recommunicates uh, to man his dominion over the animal kingdom. And it's very, very interesting when you look at the animal kingdom around the world uh, obviously we have dominion over them uh, look at how many of us there are and they're the ones that are threatened for their survival and all of these things I don't say that that's great but um, but it's it's weird so here you have these eight people who are alive you've got all of these animals beginning now to remultiply and fill the earth likewise and man is comparatively very very weak compared to the animal kingdom uh, much of the animal kingdom is much stronger it's uh, more fierce and all of these things there isn't any reason that the animal kingdom wouldn't have risen up at this point and uh, had a good you know eight person meal and uh, finished the whole thing off and uh, so what God does is is he puts a supernatural fear of man in the animal kingdom and it's very very interesting because even related to bears uh, sharks I mean almost in the entirety of the animal kingdom they, they have a fear of man they will only attack man when they become sick or disoriented or some kind of weird things ha happens and then and then they'll attack uh, human beings and the explanation for it is is right here God has taken and put that dread of us uh, in in the uh, animals and he said every moving thing that lives shall be food for you I have given you all things even as the green uh, herbs and so at this particular point in man's history he begins to become carnivorous and uh, a animal uh, meat-eating uh, creature and uh, person was better isn't it and uh, so they had been up to this point eating vegetables and uh, eating grain strictly vegetarian now for the first time God includes meat as a part of uh, man's diet and also a uh, diet for uh, uh, the the animal kingdom uh, also so that tells us that the entire world and, and the wicked thing that it had become uh, prior to the flood vegetarians all vegetarians I know I know I'm shocked too I thought they were morally superior but I'm just kidding. I have a couple of close friends are in the room. Exactly. I'm not going to look over at them though right now. I'm a vegetarian and so. But it. it uh, but sometimes it, it may be very much uh, healthier for us to be vegetarian and all. But it doesn't produce a morally superior person. Of course, I've never known a vegetarian who claimed to be morally superior. So what am I talking about? But anyway. Uh, 
You know, man is the same, vegetarian, no vegetarian. He still makes a mess of the world on, on things. So now he, he becomes a meat eater. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. He puts a restriction on man. So if he sla- uh, you know, slaughters his ox or something like that uh, in order to have uh, you know, a, a tri-tip sandwich or whatever, um, it, he, is, he can eat the meat, but the blood is to be drained from the meat. Uh, and and uh, there's no blood. The blood is, is to be drained from the body, and then the meat is, is to be eaten. And he gives us the reason there, uh, because uh, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood, because the blood represents the life uh, in in the, the animal. And, and in the Bible, blood represents life. And, and so that's why God is very, very careful, as we'll get to the sacrifices under Moses later, how careful uh, the treatment was of blood, uh, of even the animals that were sacrificed. It's important, I think, also when uh, Peter writes in his epistle, and uh, first epistle, and he said, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, the Bible, uh, lots of hymns, uh, lots of uh, worship songs speak about Jesus' blood. And sometimes when you're new to all of this, you look and go, wow, I mean, I'm trying to get that. I'm trying to understand that. But what do you mean of the blood of the lamb and, and related to the Lord? All you need to know is that the blood represents his life. So when we're talking about the blood of the lamb, his blood being shed, we're talking about his life being given for us. Uh, the life is in the blood. His life being given for us on the cross of, of Calvary. And then while he's on the uh, subject of, uh, uh, you know, blood and all and the shedding of blood and now free to take and to eat animals, but, but not with, with the blood, uh, God moves on to establish, uh, you know, capital punishment for murder in, in human uh, history. He said, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, and, and talking about uh, innocent, taking innocent life, shedding innocent blood, by man... Uh, up to now, only God has taken and, you know, and righteously been able to execute judgment upon, upon uh, man. But now he gives to man the authority to take and to shed the blood of or to kill or execute a person who has murdered another person and shed uh, innocent blood. So to murder someone, to kill someone, uh, that same man is to have his life taken also. The reason for it is then given 
uh, in verse, the remainder of verse 6, for in the image of God he made man. Now God doesn't want uh, uh, Noah and his children or his descendants to be confused that now uh, just because you are able uh, to eat meat and to you know, slaughter an ox in order to feed your family and that kind of thing, that has to do with animals. You cannot take that kind of thing and then now do it related to human beings. Uh, we're not free to, to do that. And he tells us why, and the reason why is there's a difference between man and animals. I know that can be shocking to a certain part of the population of the world that puts us all on the same level. I'm not saying we aren't stupider than dogs sometimes and uh, pretty dumb on a lot of fronts. Uh, but we were created, as he says here, in the image of God. We are different from the animal uh, uh, kingdom. And so to take and to kill an ox or to kill a sheep to, to sustain life and for food and then to kill a human being, two entirely different things. And God doesn't want there to be any confusion for people. Animals are animals, people are people. And uh, and, and so he establishes this, this protection. And uh, the whole thing behind it is to communicate the value of human life. Every human life. Human life is to be protected from those who have no regard for its value. That is murders. Those that take uh, innocent uh, life. And, and so um, he is driving home that point. So God has cleansed the earth at this point of, of the wicked through the flood. But there's still wickedness in the gene pool of man. And uh, in, in, in the heart of man. So God establishes a law to encourage law and order. And also as a protection for uh, innocent human life. And uh, so is, is uh, Noah and his descendants and then all others that read this particular record uh, in the book of Genesis. And we see that God has judged the entire world with a flood. We are not to ever come to the conclusion that life is cheap because God is forced to judge something. Life is not cheap. It's a very serious thing that God did. He knew what he did and what he did uh, at that point only he had the right uh, to do. So nobody should look and say, well, you know, the shedding of, of, innoc uh, the shedding of innocent blood is no big deal to God. It is a big deal. And there's a big difference between the two because God, when he brings his judgment, he is never shedding innocent blood. It's always guilty uh, blood. So the reminder of the value of innocent human life in the eyes uh, of, of the Lord. And so this protection um, against murder would be very, very helpful. Verse 7, uh, for the being fruitful and multiplying and, and filling the earth. Because you can't have everybody get murdered faster than people are being born. And uh, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply uh, in it. And so his protection of human life, his uh, driving home the point that human life is is uh, precious to him would help facilitate this command now to refill uh, the earth. One of the things that I think is uh, helpful for us as Christians to at least understand related to uh, capital punishment 
on uh, on things is that you can find a very very strong base for capital punish basis for capital punishment uh, in the Old Testament from all the way through the Bible from here all the way through the law of Moses and even into the New Testament where Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 13 let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God so government and and all uh, uh, of a nation and a people is established uh, in order that that government might protect uh, its population from attack from without but also from attack within so war and crime and uh, God gives the government of the different nations the authority even to use the sword or capital punishment uh, to enforce that law for he is God's minister Paul said to you for good but if you do evil be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices is evil. So sometimes people can look at things as Christians and say, wait a second, I thought in the Ten Commandments it said, thou shalt not kill. Literally it is, thou shalt not murder. And uh, there's a big difference between uh, murdering someone and then executing someone who has shed innocent uh, blood. Now, Verse uh, 8, And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, as, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So he's going to establish a covenant now with them. And with every living cr- uh, creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And thus I establish my covenant with you, never Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And again, as I said before, it will not be a flood the next time. It will be a, uh, with fire and uh, God will just simply cause the earth to disintegrate, you know, and, and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. God holds everything together. All he has to do to, to let this thing go is just to stop holding it together. And God said, here's the sign of the covenant, that I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood ever again. This is the sign of the covenant which I make between you and me and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all fish. The water shall never Never again become uh, shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so the visual the visible reminder. Uh, of this covenant and God's faithfulness to this covenant with Noah and and then all of us after that that he is not going to destroy the earth by a flood again is the rainbow 
So every time you go out and you see uh, the uh, a rain and then the rain breaks and the cloud, sun comes out and the clouds are there and everything and you see the rainbow, you say, wow, why in the world is that a part of, uh, of creation and all? God created it so that every time we see it, we'll realize that God is not going to destroy the earth in the way that he did uh, once before. You know, you get, you, you, uh, sometimes when I officiate, at a, always when I officiate at a wedding a ceremony, there's, uh, the rings are involved. And the ring is a symbol of a covenant that's being made. You know, this ring has no beginning and it has no end. And it symbolizes the unbroken love that, you know, such and such has for you. And, and so the ring is a symbol of, of the covenant that this man or woman has made to you. So that every time you look at it, it blesses your heart. It reminds you of the covenant. The unbroken love and all blesses your heart. And the rainbow is intended uh, to do the same thing for us. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And uh, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So every single one of us in this room is a descendant of either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. And you say, wow, I wonder which one I'm a descendant of. Well, uh, you might be able to track it down from chapter 10 uh, if if we get to that uh, this evening. And uh, the the whole table of of the nations might be difficult to do it even so because there's been so much movement in the world world uh, since then. But every one of us is a descendant of one of those three, even as we're a descendant of, of Adam and Eve. We all have this thing in common. It was interesting, one of the sisters um, uh, gave me an article in the last couple of weeks and uh, I had, from the Modesto Bee, and I had read it a couple of months ago or six weeks ago or a month, whatever it was, and I didn't clip it out, and, she, and I wanted to, and she did it for me. But it was talking about how the scientists, as they, as they have studied, you know, our gene pool and this and that and all the stuff about human beings and all, and, and they said uh, that if uh, that all of the science is pointing to the fact that every single one of us came from two human beings about 5,000 years ago in human history. I mean, that's... Listen, don't throw your Bible away. They're, they're catching up. It, the key is, don't you falter while they're doing that. But, I mean, just amazing. I said, if, if you uh, were on the earth 5,000 years ago, every single person that you would have met would have been your immediate relative. We all come from the same, the same group. Uh, there's only one race, truly. It's the human race. And, uh, and so fascinating. Don't give up on them, you know. And uh, I love the Bible. And uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, God's historical account of, of only things that, that he, he knows. Amazing things that are being discovered that we accept as fact by faith. Because we know God doesn't lie. And then Noah, following the flood, he began to be a farmer. And uh, he planted a vineyard. Now, this didn't happen two days after they got off the ark, this event. And Noah, he flubs here, you know. So, but, so you got enough time has passed where he gets off the, the ark. Uh, if he wasn't a farmer previously, he learns a little bit about this. Uh, it has to be enough time uh, for uh, Ham to have had a son by the name of Canaan 
because Canaan is going to uh, also sin with his father, no, his father Ham in, in, in this particular incident. And for him to be old enough to be responsible for uh, the sin that he commits. And so you probably have quite a few years, you know, 10 to 20 years that go by before this particular incident occurs. He had to plant the vineyard and learn all about it and get it going and everything and, and productive and all. It doesn't take that long for that to happen. But with, uh, with the descendant, uh, with Canaan and Ham, probably uh, gives us an idea that it, it would have been at least several years. So he planted the vineyard. And then he drank of the wine that he made from the grapes, uh, and he was drunk and became uncovered in his uh, tent. So, so he became drunk on uh, the wine that squeezed the grapes and fermented and all of this, drank of it, and he got drunk. And it's the first mention of wine in the Bible, and it's the first clear mention in the Bible of someone becoming drunk. Now, there are a lot of people, people are divided related to this and how, how to view it. I'm right, you're in good hands, I'll tell you how to, just, just teasing if you're new here. And, uh, but there are those who look at Noah and they declare, this is something that he did on purpose. I mean, he just got that thing going and went to the wine cellar and said, you know, I don't know what the date, you know, would be. Uh, uh, 2200 uh, spring 2200 BC ah fabulous fabulous it's a very good year for wine so that but that he he knew how to make the wine he knew what he was doing put the thing together and uh, and this was something that he did on purpose and the reason that uh, people generally believe that is that they believe that drunkenness uh, characterized the world prior uh, to the flood. And so Noah, Noah knew what the effects of drinking wine was. He proceeded to drink wine and he got drunk uh, anyway. And of course that makes him uh, this deliberate on his part. It makes him uh, very personally responsible for uh, his, his actions here. And typically a person will uh, quote Jesus' teaching that uh, drunkenness was a part of the pre-flood world, Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 24. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now the problem is, is that the word that Jesus uses there uh, in the original language uh, for drinking uh, prior to the flood simply means means to drink uh, it could have just been iced tea they just went over to village baking and ordered a sandwich and had an iced tea uh, prior to the flood and, uh, and and so we don't know you can't really read into that and say there was uh, there was widespread uh, drunkenness now to me because love hopes all things I'm personally uh, inclined to believe that, I mean, barring a, a clear, clear uh, statement from the Bible that Noah was, was uh, purposely did this, that this was deliberate sin on Noah's part, uh, I'm inclined to believe that it wasn't deliberate, but that it was accidental. You can disagree with me, certainly, but, but that's, that's what I believe. And, uh, and, but nevertheless, it does mar his testimony. Mars's testimony. He's been faithful to the Lord for over 600 years and all, and uh, his testimony is going to be uh, blotted here a little bit by 
uh, this, this incident. 600 years of Noah being a just man, perfect in, in his generations and all. And now this is going to kind of get attached uh, to the record. So when he gets drunk, he passes out. And somehow in passing out and collapsing in his tent, uh, he's left uncovered. Some, left in some kind of an immodest uh, position. Now, whether he's purposely guilty here or not, or those kinds of of things, we can learn a couple of lessons from him about drunkenness. The Bible prohibits drunkenness, Old Testament and New Testament. And isn't it interesting that here is this this first account of drunkenness uh, in the Bible, and what's the result of it? Immodesty, immodesty. I remember reading, it's been a few months ago, in the newspaper. It comes, it comes around every year or two. They do, you know, they spend another, uh, you know, six million dollars to do another study or something. And, uh, but they come out with a new study again and they find out, uh, th- they discover once again they, that most sexual immorality among young people occurs as a result of having become drunk. Because it lowers our inhibitions. It, it, ha- it, it uh, facilitates having us do things that we would never do if we were sober. And, uh, and so the whole uh, trail of, you know, immodesty and all of those things linked to drunkenness all the way back into Genesis uh, chapter uh, uh, 9. And uh, the Bible says for us as Christians and, and that we're never to be drunk. We're never to come under the influence of, of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Uh, be, uh, be not drunk with wine, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, where in his excess. But be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to be under the uh, influence of. So we know better. We, uh, we don't have any excuses for getting drunk. It's, it is not to be in the life of a child of God. Now notice that as he lies uncovered in his tent, that uh, Ham, one of his sons, who is the father of Canaan, uh, one of his uh, Ham's children, he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, Noah's other two sons, when they heard the report concerning their dad, they took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, they went into the tent backwards. They didn't even want to see their dad in, in that condition. Went backwards, they covered the nakedness of their father and their Faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's uh, nakedness. Now, um, and then it's going to go on to speak about Noah becoming very upset with what uh, Ham uh, does to him, and he pronounces a curse upon one section of of his his lineage. Now, it would appear that Ham doesn't uh, come out of that tent. Ham does something wrong here. Uh, it isn't entirely clear in the passage, but uh, he evidently did not come out of the tent and humbly and discreetly come to the other two brothers and say, well, I don't know what's happened to dad. I mean, 
six hundred and something years he's been this and all I've never seen him in this condition something and and all what are we going to do here and and that kind of a of a humility and that kind of concern uh, for his his father's uh, condition but um, it appears that he came out of the tent and then just boldly and openly and uh, perhaps even mockingly uh, informed them of the condition of dad there uh, in the tent the Hebrew word for told uh, in that verse it carries the idea of doing something boldly there's no humility uh, and, and meekness related to what Ham does here he seems to broadcast the news and he seems to enjoy uh, having uh, uh, doing that so Ham's failure in this is not seeing his father's nakedness but apparently in how he uh, reports it there was, an, there was not a need for anyone else to know the condition of his father in that tent. It would be one thing if, if Noah was a danger to other people or something like that. Then you have to escalate, let people know certain things because somebody could become a victim of something. But there wasn't any reason not to tie up the flap of that tent, make sure nobody gets in there until uh, dad figures out what in the world happened here on the thing but there wasn't any need to inform anybody else of of his his father's uh, uh, failure now the lessons we see the lessons from Noah related to drunkenness those lessons that we can learn from Ham about repeating uh, a matter Ham's mocking uh, it would seem here related to his father very very uh, dangerous thing to do biblically all the way through the scripture uh, God looks down on another person making fun of uh, another person's sin or God's judgment of it it's interesting that later on in the history of the nation of Israel even when Israel was at their worst and God was forced to judge them and uh, judge them very very severely when the nations that God used to judge his people for their wrongdoing enjoyed it too much um, went too far God then spoke to those nations and said I'm going to even bring a greater judgment upon you for doing that and so as serious as the sin of the nation of Israel sometimes that they committed to then enjoy that their judgment uh, to openly mock it and all in God's eyes just as great a sin and just as, as serious a sin to to him and maybe even in more serious in, in in some ways Noah's sin was great here no two ways about it but Ham's sin was greater and I think it's important in the kingdom of God to, uh, to be very very careful in how we respond to somebody else's sin that we become aware of you see their feet of clay I'm not talking about when people are in danger and something's habitual and there's you know but this what Noah's done here is not, not characteristic of, of his life and uh, and, and so uh, here to take and to broadcast the news of someone's sin I mean God really took that very very serious and it sets me up if I do that it sets me up for judgment 
Solomon wrote in Proverbs and he said, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. How many things are you and I aware of concerning the failings of others that we have never ever repeated? You know, there are some things that need to be repeated. But, but things that we know about somebody else, but it is not constructive to inform anybody else related to it. It doesn't do any good to spread it any further. That's not characteristic of the person's life and all. And when you do that, there are certain things in our lives, things that we know about, the failure, we see somebody stumble in sin, that should die with us. It should die with us. We should keep it as small as, as we can in the same way that we would hope somebody else would do, do for, for us. And so if there is that kind of a thing where you say, you know, I, I know uh, quite a number of things about where people have stumbled or they've made a mistake and they've sinned or whatever here on something. It's not characteristic of their life. They learned what they were supposed to learn from there. But I've never told a single person about it. You're faithful. You're faithful, and the Lord notices that, and, and He commends that. But if, there, if a person is a person that when they see the failure in another person's lives, and the kind of Christian where you would maybe sit here tonight and say, I have never known a single person to sin that I have not then made at least one other person aware of it. That's wrong. That's wrong. It puts me on the path of, of Ham. It puts me in a place where God is going to have to chasten me and, and judge me uh, related to that. I love what Peter says in the New Testament related to this. He said, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then here's a very, very important verse in this vein. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, as Paul writes by the Spirit. Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, I mean, they've sinned. You who are spiritual, that is under the control of the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's the Spirit. And Ham lacked that Spirit. In, in coming here, in, in dealing with his, his father's sin. Shem and Japheth, there in verse 23, very, very humble in their treatment of their father's sin. Um, very, very uh, gentle, very, very discreet in their handling of their father's uh, sin. I mean, they're the picture there of, of Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. I mean, they looked at their dad's life. So we know what he's been for 600 years, and we don't know what this thing is all about, but, but he doesn't deserve to have, you know, kind of the first mis big mistake that he makes in life be broadcast all around the camp and the family uh, to, to shame him. And so they're a beautiful picture of, of how to handle uh, that kind of, of a situation. Now Noah, verse 24, he awakes from his wine. You notice he doesn't awake from his sleep. He awakes from the effects of the wine. And so he's passed out as a result of his drinking. And he knew uh, what his younger son, Ham, had done to him. So perhaps uh, somehow he knows what Ham has done to him. 
in uh, mocking him, broadcasting his his failure here and uh, and sin. And uh, maybe he wakes up and he notices a garment that's been put around him that wasn't around him when he knew he sat down to, you know, <laughs> try out uh, whatever he was trying out there on on things. And uh, so, who in the world did this? What happened? You know, and and he starts to ask questions and all. And of course, the boys. This is their dad. It's a patriarchal society. They got to answer him and his questions and pretty soon he's informed or maybe God gives him a revelation related to it of how amused Ham was over his father's condition and then broadcasting his the, this shame of his father to the rest of the family and he pronounces a curse on Ham's lineage and uh, specifically upon Ham's uh, son Canaan. And then he said, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So essentially Noah declares uh, here, and he's going to pronounce not only a curse upon Canaan, but also a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. Uh, he essentially, uh, prophetically, by the Spirit of God, uh, recognizes that the character of these three lineages have been revealed now in, in how they've handled uh, this, this situation. Now, when he utters this prophecy against Ham's son, uh, Canaan, Canaan is not, uh, Noah is not holding Canaan uh, responsible for his father's sin. But uh, it seems obvious that for some, uh, Canaan here had played some kind of an, you know, undisclosed and serious part uh, of, of this whole humiliation of Noah. And the reason that I think that we know that is, is, is we get then into chapter 10 another time, uh, and it talks about the descendants of uh, of Ham. In fact, notice in chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, uh, Mitzarim, uh, Put, and Canaan. So, so Ham had multiple sons. And God does not, or jo- Noah here prophetically does not curse the entire lineage, uh, all descendants of Ham. He is very specific that this curse that is is being pronounced is against a very narrow band of even Ham's lineage. In other words, he's um, being very discriminating in 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 this curse that's pronounced, uh, which indicates that Canaan was guilty in in some uh, particular way. And so the descendants of Canaan ultimately they would become the Canaanites, and they would settle into what uh, uh, would ultimately. Be become known as Canaan because of them they would then be displaced uh, by the Jews who were descendants of Shem a fulfillment of the prophecy that Noah makes here to Shem and then uh, God uh, because the the Jews uh, descended from the lineage of Shem the large uh, large portion of the Gentile world was a descendant of Japheth and uh, and and so um, uh, here you've got Canaan never uh, that they are cursed to become a servant to these other people groups and Canaan ultimately displaced from the land by the Jews 
Jews, they would, um, that the descendants of Canaan would never dominate the world, even the Gentile world, in the way that the descendants of Japheth would. We'll see that a little bit more when we get into chapter 10 another time. And so there is the curse upon Canaan, the blessing, verse 26, uh, upon Shem and Japheth. Blessed be the Lord, uh, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And so they, they have typically historically been so. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and uh, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's all we know about his death. So he lives another 350 years uh, following this event, give or take 600 years old at the time of the flood. And uh, so end of an era, really. I mean, it, it would officially end with the death of his sons. But here is Noah. Imagine what he has seen. Uh, just one of eight people in human history who saw the world, life on this earth, the way that it was prior to the flood, and then to see what the world became after the flood. And so, uh, our dear brother Noah, a sad note, kind of, uh, but isn't it something how the Lord doesn't um, uh, hide the feet of clay of even the heroes in the Bible? Because there's only one real hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus. But it also makes you thankful not to be in the Bible uh, sometimes. A little uh, more discreet on things, but it, it uh, helps us to understand these, these men and, and women. So we'll pick it up in chapter 10 and uh, please memorize all the names in uh, chapter 10 before we come together uh, next week and let's stand together.